Hey, everybody. This is Volts for October 18th, 2023. What's the deal with Iceland? I'm your host, David Roberts. Iceland is an island just south of the Arctic Circle, perched directly atop a rift where two tectonic plates are pulling apart, exposing the magma below. It is a small country, physically about the size of Kentucky, with a population a little larger than Cleveland, Ohio's, but what it lacks in size, it makes up for in drama. It is a land of glaciers and volcanoes, ice and fire, wind and rain and snow, and deep heat that makes them bearable. I was there for four days last week, meeting with sustainability-related businesses, hearing about everything from microalgae to grid monitoring to carbon recycling to using 100% of the fish. There's an incredible amount of innovation going on there, and to my unending delight, a great deal of that innovation is in some way or another in a symbiotic relationship with geothermal, the heat and power that Icelanders pull from underground. Iceland's electricity is entirely carbon-free, roughly 70% hydropower and 30% geothermal, and so is its heating, 90% of which is geothermal. Overall, 85% of its total energy consumption is carbon-free, and it is aiming for 100% by 2040. To hear more about all this, I visited the Reykjavik office of well, as you'll hear below, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce her name. Here she is saying it. She runs Iceland's National Energy Authority, overseeing the country's electricity system. She used to teach at the Iceland School of Energy at Reykjavik University, and now teaches at the Harvard Kennedy School, where she co-founded the Arctic Initiative and founded the Arctic Innovation Lab. There's no one with a better sense of the overall state of Iceland's energy situation. We talked about the country's history with geothermal, its current energy mix and policies, and its race to become the world's first fully carbon neutral nation. I'm here with Hala, who I'm going to call you by your first name. Will you say your name for us? So we... I'm Halla Hrundlóadóttir, one of these Icelandic simple names. <laughs> yes, extremely. That is extremely Icelandic. And you're head of the National Energy Authority. National Energy Authority here in Iceland. And I've been uh, visiting Iceland here for the last three or four days, visiting lots of um, startups and, and sustainable businesses of various kinds and have found it absolutely fascinating, much more than I expected. Such a unique, so many things about Iceland in general, but Iceland's energy situation, they're just absolutely unique and fascinating. So maybe the place to start is you could just tell our American audience, which is, you know, Americans are not known for their deep knowledge of other countries. So maybe we could just start by a little history of Iceland and Geothermal, which is, I think, the sort of origin story of Iceland's current situation. So, so um, maybe just tell us, like, what happened back in the 60s and 70s 
and why and sort of what the, what the result is. Absolutely. And I think, you know, just to kind of start where we are at today and then looking back, you know, today, nine out of 10 houses in the country are heated with geothermal. And overall, 85% of our primary energy use comes from renewables. So the hydropower is the other uh, main source of electricity production, basically. But the heating mainly comes from geothermal. And it is a unique situation, but it is a story that goes way back. It started with bathing, you know, that is kind of from the Vikings uh, <laughs> right. coming here, staying warm in this cold country. <laughs> But then in the early 1900s, there was a farmer that found a way to connect his farm to a neighboring hot spring uh, here in Mosfellsbær, which is close to Reykjavik, where we're sitting now. And a few others did the same. And so it was a, a story of entrepreneurship and innovation. Uh, then municipalities noticed this technology and it became a part of a policy to make a long story <laughs> short. <laughs> But then the first drilling for geothermal was done in the early 1900s and 1928 here in Reykjavik. Mm. And I think such an important part of that, this story is the fact that those were small projects, but they were used to heat key buildings, uh, like the hospital that you can still see downtown and a primary school that we have downtown. And this was really important because it made the technology, the fact that it worked very visible to people mm. and made the buy-in for the technology, you know, you always need buy-in from voters and so forth. Uh, the benefits were very obvious from these two key examples. And from uh, these small successes, the big transition, the big story begins, which also I think is interesting now when we, we think about the overall energy transition. Uh, it usually starts with small pilots that then become added up to a major success. Then we had the first uh, world war that was a driver for the government to look closer at local energy resources. But then, as you mentioned, the big change was in the 60s and the 70s uh, during the oil crisis mm -hmm. in the world. And, you know, we're an island, it, extremely expensive to import oil and gas, which were the main types of energy used here in Iceland at that time. So the government started building incentives for this transition. And the major part of that incentive is the Iceland Energy Fund. I don't know, do you know of that fund? So just to share a bit about it, it's a fund that was established to help mitigate risk of drilling for geothermal. Oh, I did hear about that. Yeah, I've had a couple of people talk to me about it. So they can loan a village money, and if yeah. the village finds geothermal, yeah. they pay it back. Yeah. But if they don't, the loan is just, is just canceled, right? Almost Ish. as good as Close. that. Yes, <laughs> about 50% is canceled. So, mm. But definitely, you know, the, the main features of it. And this is what allowed small municipalities in Iceland to really focus on you know, exploring geothermal in their regions. And about 20 district heating systems were built across the island during uh, this time from 61 to uh, 1983 or so. And the beauty is that these are the same uh, systems, the same infrastructure 
that we're still using today. So it proves as well how stable the geothermal resource is and you know how important it is when we're looking at the energy transition is to make the right bets when it comes to building infrastructure because it has such a long lifetime. So this kind of the, these are the main factors of, of our history and I think it's important to highlight I mean, this is long before climate change became a major issue. The research was not where it is today, uh, but it was about economics. It was about energy security and then clean air. I mean, you can, you can see pictures from Reykjavik, very close from where we're sitting now, where you have this thick smoke mm -hmm. looming over the city. And just imagining that, you know, a few decades later, it would be one of the cleanest cities in the world. Yeah, stable and stable prices too, right? right. Like it's not going to all of a sudden, prices are not going to spike or, or fly around. So that's an undersold aspect of renewables is they're the same price now. They're going to be the same price in a week, in a, in a year, in two years. We should say, I didn't, um, I'm not sure everyone knows exactly why there's so much geothermal power in Iceland. So maybe just say real quick about the continental plates, which I've been learning a lot about this, this week. Yeah, I, we are situated on the boundaries of two tectonic plates that are drifting apart, you know, two centimeters per year. So <laughs> you can say that you are either in Europe or North America when you're in Iceland, <laughs> depending on location. But that, because of that, we have a lot of geothermal activity. We have a lot of volcanoes in Iceland. And because of the high temperature, we can both use our hot water that comes from the ground for district heating. Uh, so we're basically almost using the water directly, if you will. Mm -hmm. Or we can use it for electricity production. And I think it's important to note that the planet has huge potential for geothermal. And particularly when you look at using the water directly for mm -hmm. district heating. And a, a very interesting things are happening in that space across the planet. Uh, when you look at areas that have high temperatures that you can produce electricity as well, those places are fewer, but mm -hmm. there's definitely a lot of potential there as well. But as soon as you start to look at the uh, source as simply a heat source, mm -hmm. then you know it's just fascinating to look at the potential and to witness. I mean, we at the National Energy Authority, we partner with a lot of countries in Europe. We're working now particularly with countries in Eastern Europe that are trying to you know, get more energy independent after the war in Ukraine. And you know, there's resources there, maybe with between 40, 60, even 70 degrees temperature. These are not volcanically active areas but they have potential to heat millions of homes. Mm -hmm. And they just haven't been looking at that potential because it's been so much cheaper to import yeah. gas from Russia. Well, I have a, a question related to that. So the, the government decided, I mean, it's a pretty cool story. The government decided we're going to move our country's heating over to geothermal and then just did it <laughs> in like a decade. You don't, you don't hear a lot of stories about large-scale, ambitious, successful government initiatives these days. But you know the, the the population of Iceland was it's relatively small today, three hundred and eighty thousand yeah. ish. But I'm, I assume it was even smaller yes. back then. So a lot of your current housing stock and buildings have been built with district heating 
under them. So it's easy to do district heating if you're building a new development, but a lot of the, a lot of other countries, Eastern European countries, U.S., there's already so much building stock existing. So is it more difficult to retrofit existing buildings with this than is that a major barrier? It's definitely an issue. It is much more expensive if you need to transition the whole system. But if you are using, uh, you know, in many countries in Eastern Europe, for an example, you have like gas, you, you just have to change the heat source. The infrastructure are pipes. Mm. So in these cases, it can be particularly economical to just change the heat source from gas to geothermal. So those are kind of the low-hanging fruits where you have existing infrastructure. Then if you look to countries, for an example, like China, that has been expanding quite dramatically. They have geothermal in 70 cities now. There you're looking at China using a lot of it for uh, new buildings as well. Right. And there, we're talking about then heat down to maybe 50 degrees Celsius. And there the design of the building is also you know, using floor heat and so forth to make the biggest use of the lower temperatures. But I will add to this that, of course, geothermal is, is many things. And in terms of uh, lower temperatures and in terms of, you know, where you don't have like a centralized district heating system, you can still do a lot with, you know, if you combine different solutions with uh, heat pumps and so forth mm -hmm. that also take advantage of geothermal heating in a different way. Yes, this is one of my favorite projects uh, in the U.S. I did a podcast about this last year, the sort of geo grid they're doing, a, a, a test up in, in Massachusetts where they're doing little boreholes every 50 feet or so and, and then have heat exchangers with each house. Very excited about that. So that's heating, which is now almost all of Iceland's building heating. So when did geothermal electricity take off? It's now 30% of your electricity yes. and, the, and the other 70% is hydro, which I assume yeah. is just rivers. Yeah, glacial rivers mainly. Right. And that's another story really. So the electricity production comes much later with the bigger plants. I know that you visited mm -hmm. uh, one of them. And, you know, you have, with, with geothermal, you have to make sure that you manage the resource well. Uh, and as you have witnessed, you know, one of the elements is electricity production that we use it where it's high temperature today. But we also use different streams of the hot water for greenhouses, uh, for drying fish, for heating sidewalks, you know, during our snowy season, which is long, I can tell you. <laughs> and uh, for all kind of for cosmetics, for food supplements. So there's a big industry, like an innovation happening around the geothermal resource in general. And I would say, you know, it's very integrated in people's culture, also through bathing. You, there's not mm -hmm. a weekend that you don't go, you know, we went to Sky Lagoon on our first night here. Yeah, that's the fancy stuff, you it's, know? It's <laughs> pretty amazing. Yeah, but I'm but there are little pools all over the place. I There's, I challenge you to visit one of them. It's like a standard thing to do for a family in Reykjavik is to go to visit one of the pools. So it ties into like also just the general 
uh, healthy way of living, which I think has contributed to so many different aspects of the Icelandic society. I, I meant to say, um, the, the thing that surprised me most in the last four days is, I knew there's lots of geothermal here, I knew there's geothermal electricity here, but as you say, there's this entire ecosystem of businesses that are symbiotic with geothermal. They use the water for different things, the cold water, the hot water, the, the steam, like every, it's like they say, you know, the eat the whole animal. It's like yeah. every bit of that heat and water and steam and every bit of that geothermal is used somehow, somewhere. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, you know, the, the circular economy kind of thinking. And I have to say, because, um, you know, you come from the States and you have this incredible Silicon Valley that is the hub of technology in the world. You know, we have two resource parks, one uh, here in Reykjanes area and one here not so far from uh, Reykjavik. And these are resource parks that exactly work with the ideology that you described. So many companies in renewable energy working together. Carfix, that yes. it has this major potential in the world of simply turning CO2 into stone, where you have basalt uh, rock in the world, and then Climeworks. I talked to them yesterday. Right, so you have these kind of um, ecosystems, and I, I sometimes say that these are tiny, tiny little Silicon Valleys that have <laughs> yes. you know, so much potential to grow. Really. Yeah, so much cleverness and so much innovation. It's really surprising, all the thinking that goes on around that. So this raises a question that I get a lot from people when, whenever I talk about geothermal, which is, how renewable is it? Is it possible to exhaust a geothermal field? Or is, there, or, or is it, if you manage it well, is it effectively renewable forever? Is there any worry about running out? <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely you have to manage the resource well. You have to make sure that you're not pumping more out from the resource then flows into it, if you will. So there's definitely a sustainability management. But as I mentioned, we've been using our resources for decades. And um, uh, we are looking at developing more sites in Iceland now because uh, there's so many tourists, uh, there's more people, uh, so the demand has grown a lot. But it's definitely a, a resource that you can count on for a long time and is renewable in the sense that if you manage it well, it maintains itself uh, over time. But I will also say that because one of the hidden elements of geothermal in the renewable energy category is the fact that it is baseload. You know, you have mm -hmm. baseload heating from geothermal. Well, you, if you look at solar and wind, these are dependent on the weather. And then as well, it has very low footprint in terms mm -hmm. of visibility. And we see with the energy transition across the world that, you know, visibility is usually, you know, when it relates to wind power, for an example, a big factor. So geothermal has these secret elements, not to add to that is also the price factor. You know, we have not had any major shifts in energy prices for heating our homes during the uh, European energy crisis. Yes. So there's a lot of uh, benefits that come together. And of course, the fact that it is green, it's, it's our luck that we've transitioned. So now when we're looking at closing the energy transition gap, 
we have a renewable energy component for the heating. And you know, heating and cooling is about 50% or up to 15% of the world's primary mm -hmm. energy use. So once we've tackled the heating and cooling crisis in the world, we have tackled such a big part as well of the climate crisis. And that's why geothermal is an important solution to keep as one of the puzzles. It will never be the puzzle, but it can definitely play a much bigger role than it's playing now. I've said as much many, many times. I mean, you're so lucky here that you have the two forms of renewable energy that are not variables. You have not had to, to deal with that kind of, with the same kind of worries about flexibility and balancing and everything else that you have with, with wind and solar. Although I did, it, it, this does raise a question that I've had several times, that one of the notable features of the climate here is, is extremely windy yes. <laughs> every, every, everywhere all the time. <laughs> and so it's a little puzzling that there's no wind turbines anywhere. Uh, is that, uh, was that a conscious decision and is that gonna stay that way? Is there any talk about bringing wind or, or, or offshore wind? Cause it's yeah. extremely windy out there. Yes. So right now, as I mentioned, we have like 85% of our primary energy use covered by renewables. So we're looking at the final 15% to close the gap. Mm -hmm. And if we think about, you know, what is included in these final 15%? Cars, it's, <laughs> cars, yeah. cars, cars, cars. It's cars, uh, but it's, so it's transportation on land basically. And then it's our shipping fleet. We're a big fishing nation. And then it's aviation. Mm. And uh, we are quite far along when it comes to transitioning uh, with our transportation on land. Basically, if you look at what the public is doing, it's around 65% of newly registered cars are electric in Iceland. Mm. If you count the car rentals, which are pretty big in Iceland, the proportion is lower. But we're number two in the world after Norway. Uh, when it comes to being the, the fastest one and transitioning our car fleet. Uh, when it comes to our shipping vessels, a lot of things are happening, but it's happening slower because you need to retrofit the ships. Right. You need to make sure that they can be the end user of e-fuels, for an example. And this is where we look at, you know, it's not about, you can't plug the ships in like you can with your electric cars. You need e-fuels. Mm -hmm. And this is where energy demand comes in. And one of the areas thus where wind power is being discussed is how to use that resource to help us with the energy transition. To make e-fuels. To make e-fuels. And I will say, you know, the energy mix in Iceland is really interesting because it's only four to 5% that are homes, the end consumers. Then you have 15% that are like normal businesses. And then 80%. Yes, I was, gonna, I was gonna discuss, this was also a very great surprise to me. 80% of electricity consumption yeah. is industry, big industry, right, which right. is not necessarily what you'd expect to find on a little island in the middle of nowhere. And yeah. not just big industry, but a relatively small handful of really big, plants. Uh, yes. Aluminum, right? Uh, aluminum. Yes. So this became a strategy of the government earlier on. You know, Iceland became independent in 1944 and we were looking at ways, this also ties into the geothermal story, we were looking at ways to basically become independent 
a diversifier economy and so forth. So attracting the aluminum industry and others to locating in Iceland was a part of the strategy to gain you know, uh, revenues and build up our economy. Uh, but it's definitely an unusual energy mix and keeping in mind as well that we are an island system. We do not have an interconnector right. to anywhere. So we, our way of exporting uh, electricity, if you will, is through aluminum. We export right. it through production. Right, basically. you use the clean energy to make aluminum and then export the aluminum. Yes. But there's been discussions in the society about how much more should be developed. There's continuous dialogues about what for and so forth. But uh, the government is now working on, and we are contributing to, a holistic policy because you have also elements of you know, us wanting to protect nature as well as you know, developing energy resources, both resources nature and energy, renewable energy, are increasing in value, if you will. Mm -hmm. So it's important to find balance. Uh, offshore is not as far in the policymaking world as onshore. We have unusually good conditions in both areas, but offshore is more difficult than in some other locations in Iceland because you have deep waters. Mm. So you need floating in many cases. Right, and right. the technology is not completely cost competitive. But it is, as I said, it is an ongoing dialogue. And What's the, is the public, has the public sort of weighed in on wind turbines yet? What's the, I, I, they love geothermal. Do they have feelings about wind? I think it's much more difficult subject. In general, there's always been debate about any big projects that have an impact on Iceland's nature because we have one of the most diverse sets of nature in the world, you know, ranging from lava to black sanded beaches to glaciers to green fields, you know, it's really... It's, it's dramatic. Yes. <laughs> everywhere you go, everywhere you look, there's something dramatic. Yeah, so people are conscious about making sure that there is uh, this value that definitely plays a role in our economy as well and is important for the future is kept at the same time that we continue to grow our potential by utilizing our green resources. So this is where long-term policy making comes into play. And we certainly do have policy measures that aim to tackle exactly that. And right now, if you want to build a wind farm, it goes through parliament through a process called the master plan. So it's quite a, a heavy process, but whether you look left or, or right in the political sphere, people are in full agreement about finishing the energy transition. So transitioning to net zero yes. is not politically controversial. Every, more or less everyone's on board. Yes. And I mean, it's a unique opportunity. We may you know, we may be small, but it would be a proof, and this is the exciting part, it would be a proof that you can actually run a whole economy uh, completely on renewables. And if we can't do that with 85% of our primary energy already coming from renewables, then the question might be, you know, who can then? <laughs> right. One thing before we move on from surface transportation, this is a big issue in the U.S. that we come back to again and again. Is electrification of vehicles the only policy or is there any talk about 
trying to bring in public transportation, biking and walking infrastructure, just reducing the amount of, of driving because it is pretty driving dependent here, uh, similar to most American cities. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's been much more focus on biking in the recent decade or so. And I would say with electric bikes, you know, that can kind of support you during the wind you mentioned. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's been a big shift for people actually using that as a part of commute. And uh, there are kind of bigger projects that relate to public transportation that needs to be improved in Iceland for sure, must be a part of the solution. So all of these factors are playing a role and speaking of the energy fund that I mentioned earlier, the role of the fund now has been to help Iceland with the final 15%. And a part of that has been to support building infrastructure for electric cars across the island. Because Icelanders, you know, they like to drive, they need to be able to take their car and go somewhere. I think it's a similar mindset as in the US. So making sure that you know, there is infrastructure everywhere in the island, uh, so it doesn't become a barrier for people to actually take that step and invest in an electric vehicle. In terms of the huge role industry plays, aluminum in specific, so there's like three giant aluminum smelters and then like two other, I think, big industrial facilities. So that 80% of, of electricity demand is basically five, I think, big factories or big, do you worry, like if one of those closed, all of a sudden you'd have a relatively giant <laughs> surplus of, of electricity? Are you worried at all how, how big a role they play uh, in the electricity system or in the energy system that it, there's some vulnerability there? Or like how, how confident are you that these industries are happy and gonna stay? And mm -hmm. So we have more, we have the ones you mentioned and then you have data centers and more kind right. of, a bit more diversified set of buyers. Um, it, the situation as it is today is that, that we have much more demand that we can you know, produce. So there's, if there would be a, such a risk that one of these players would close, of course it would temporarily have an impact. But with the massive demand for renewables in the world, with the energy needs as we have for our transition, there would definitely be opportunities in that space. Right, and then and then, so there's one e-fuels, there's one current methanol plant uh, making green methanol. Are there more of those on the way? Is that a, a big growth area? Yeah, one of the things that we've been doing through the Energy Fund is investing in the shipping industry to co-invest with companies in retrofitting ships because you need to have the user, the right? The demand, right. Yeah, and that has been kind of the challenge. You, you establish the production, and if you don't have the demand, there's a difficulty in, in matching uh, these two factors. So right now, there are some plants that have also gotten support from the energy fund that are on the horizon. But it is an interesting market in a big transition globally. You know, there's so many questions around, you know, how will the market look like? What will be the key fuels that will be used for different mm -hmm. sectors? 
you know, where will Iceland be most competitive in what type of production? There are many types of e-fuel, so mm -hmm. likely we would not be producing all of them. What needs to be the size of these projects to be cost competitive? So it's a lot of these questions are also re reflected in the development of uh, this industry globally. And it's important to Iceland to, you know, stay tuned to be in the forefront but also it means that there are some more risks involved yeah all these chicken and egg yes. uh, questions yeah although it does seem like there's going to be i think i've at least read of, of several shipping companies that have sort of stated goals yeah so it does seem like there's definitely going to be some some demand and we have very ambitious goals when it comes to completing our energy transition in the near future when it comes to uh, transportation on land and when it comes to our shipping fleet. And these are also the sectors that are really important to focus on when it comes to EU legislations, because we, one can say that this, these are emissions that we're also critically responsible for. Mm -hmm. Where it comes to aviation... Yeah, I was going to ask, is there... What is the solution? What is that answer to aviation? Do you guys have one? So, well, I can tell you if we start by looking at domestic flights, one of, of the most exciting co-investments of the Energy Fund last year was the fact that we purchased together with multiple parties the first e-plane, mm. which is basically an electric plane that you can you know, you can plug it in as your phone or your hair dryer <laughs> and you can f take off in weather like we have today, a sunny, still weather where there's almost <laughs> no wind, but you can fly for half an hour. But if you look at the, how the technology is developing here, you can see that there's likely going to be around, you know, up to 10 passenger planes, maybe a bit more that can fly short distances. And those would be perfect for domestic flight in Iceland, because right. the distances are relatively short. And because, you know, if it's electric planes, you know, the infrastructure would be much less difficult, the transition, the cost of electricity would be lower. So it could actually mean a lot of interesting things for, you know, development of, for different towns in Iceland. So it's quite... Right, a, make them more accessible. Right. So it's a very exciting area to follow. But when it comes to aviation, you know, between countries, we're talking about the European Union has its goals. We're talking about different paths there. And it's much more likely that, you know, not one country will kind of lead the way, but these are international standards. So we will follow these standards and be in the, at the forefront. But it's, you know, in aviation, you need to follow the rules, obviously. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose you could be a big producer of aviation fuels too, sustainable aviation Right, fuels. that's also a, a possibility, right. Yeah. Uh, one question I got uh, when I was discussing this on social media about Iceland is, as you say, you don't have a grid intertie with anyone else, so you're somewhat unique, well, similar to Hawaii, actually, in being a full self-contained grid with no external connection. In Hawaii, that's an endless challenge because there's so much variable solar wind involved. Is it a challenge here? Because 
hydro and geothermal are both pretty stable and predictable. Yeah. So does that make managing the grid pretty easy or do you have these balancing challenges as well? You're right that it's much more stable. And definitely if, if we look at integration of wind and solar, you know, here in the future, it's possible to have right. <laughs> solar even in Iceland for at least for some part of the year. Is it? What's the... It seems pretty gray. Yeah. <laughs> well, but with technology, I mean, it can be, again, a tiny little solution, but not the, 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 the biggest factor. Right. But it can play a role, uh, especially in colder areas that do not have access to geothermal. Mm. But um, there is, of course, a, a variability still in the system. Uh, sometimes you have more current in the glacier rivers because you know the melting is different depending on how weather has been has it rained a lot has it not you know so all of these natural factors matter and it's you can compare it to fisheries you know sometimes you can catch more cod <laughs> sometimes it needs to be a bit less it's like natural variability as well but those are small percentage of our overall system and the way that energy companies manage these variabilities is by selling types of agreement that can be, you know, you can cut how much you supply when the, you have a smaller amount of water in the hydro reservoirs and so forth. But for the biggest part of it, it's really stable system. And so probably there's not a ton of storage. Is, is, are, are batteries, grid batteries, not really a thing that you, you need? The, I mean, our, our uh, reservoirs hydro, are really our storage system. Right, right. So that's, um, but we are following closely and, and participating in innovations when it comes to battery technology, because these types of technologies can definitely play a role for e-fuel production, they can play a role for isolated communities. We have mm. a lot of them as well in Iceland that do not maybe have the same access to the grid. Right. So there's definitely many user cases for such technology as well. And to be honest, if you look at the world, you know, big innovation breakthroughs in battery technology would mean so many things. Yes, it'd be very, very helpful for many, uh, many, many economies. Yeah. Is there more hydro? How close is hydro to being tapped out? So right now, there are a few things happening in the hydro space. There are new power plants in the making. Are they controversial at all? Politically controversial at all? So we have this policy framework called the master plan. So after certain steps, projects go through the parliament and are either approved or not. So you have some hydropower projects that have been approved and are in development and one of them is actually quite close to uh, the final stages of permitting and so forth. So there's potential in new projects, some potential, but there's also potential in updating or upgrading mm -hmm. other ones. And that is a very important factor as well because in these cases you've gone through all the legislative processes and it's a much better use of the resource if you just add new equipment and get more power. So there's um, potential there. And then there's been development as well in smaller hydropower projects. And that is how Iceland's story and hydro actually started. So you had, similar to geothermal, it was 
a journey led by farmers and often you had you know, a few farmers clustered together having a small hydro project in one of the kind of neighboring rivers or small streams. So you, you had over 200 such systems in Iceland before the, the overall grid was built for the country. So um, we also have some potential in, in these smaller projects as well. We have potential when it comes to geothermal. We have potential, of course, when it comes to wind. Uh, but I would say that there is a clear focus on how we can use these projects to complete the energy transition. And there is a big demand from the public to you know, make sure that we're using the resource well, that uh, we are developing it in sites that do not impact nature too much and so forth. So. And speaking of getting more out of existing uh, facilities, is there innovation in trying to get more out of existing geothermal fields, like trying to go uh, yes. deeper? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is very uh, exciting topic, actually. So you both have potential in improving geothermal by injecting water, making sure that the water you pump out, you're re-pumping water into the system. So that's something that can extend the lifetime and the potential of the area as well. So that's one area, but the deep drilling, we've mm. had projects here in the past and that are still ongoing in terms of drilling much, much deeper yeah, yeah. And, and getting like a, a super hot conditions. And honestly, these are types of um, projects that could really bring a revolution for the geothermal industry. And what I find fascinating is to, if you look at what is happening in the geothermal industry, is that you're seeing more and more of oil companies looking at this industry. Originally, the technology comes partially from that industry, a lot of the technology. And I should mention, because we were talking about earlier, like how the transition went from A to B and, and, and so forth. I mean, it was a major undertaking at the time, because at the time, geothermal was not a plug and play technology. Mm. It was like a, a big innovation project. And we're speaking about Icelanders being few. We're speaking about, you know, not having very educated workforce. Mm -hmm. So it's actually an incredible journey that this actually happened. But in terms of going back to the field today, the oil and gas sector is looking at geothermal as a part of their transition. And there's a lot of win-win through collaboration there because technology, funding, you know, the research part of it, mm -hmm. all can play a role. And you, you see that if you look at who are the biggest investors in the geothermal expansion in China, for instance, it's Sinopec. If you think about, you know, other players, Chevron has been investing in geothermal in Europe. I think Shell had a similar <coughs> venture. So drilling is their thing. So. Yeah. And the geothermal industry has suffered from, you know, because it's a upfront cost technology. Right. Uh, so maybe there's a, a potential to, you know, make sure that geothermal takes off as a part of our green transition by utilizing some of these funds and expertise and at the same time help uh, cities and, and towns around the world to become less dependent on other types of fossil fuels. Yeah, and so uh, politics, it's the one thing I haven't really 
looked into it all since I've been here. I've just been talking to businesses, and so I don't have a good sense of Iceland politics. But it seems like there's a weird <laughs> something I haven't encountered <laughs> anywhere else, which is a kind of consensus and unanimity and, and long-term thinking and planning, everyone moving together, everyone having the same goal. Are there political controversies around energy or, or is politics just, are, all the, are the fights elsewhere? Are there, are there um, controversial things in the energy transition? So I mentioned that completing the energy transition, different parties are unified around that goal. And people are extremely proud of the geothermal history. And actually geothermal, I mean, it's been a part of our foreign policy. We've educated thousands of people across the planet on geothermal. I think we've participated in almost all geothermal power plants that have been built elsewhere than in Iceland. So it's a big part of our identity and you know our expertise, our contribution to energy transition elsewhere as well. Mm -hmm. But the controversies may, you know, like in other countries, there's controversies when it comes to development of projects in terms of nature conservation mm. uh, versus development, even though it's renewable energy projects. There's controversies around utilization, you know, what type of end users should we at be attracting and so forth. So these are examples of areas that have been debated and there's an ongoing debate in many of these fields. But I think the good news is that having such debates is important and healthy part of the process, as long as we're all aiming to the same goal and the same destination. What is the um, statutory goal? What are, the, what, what are your targets, officially speaking? Basically, so our energy policy aims that we become completely oil-free, if you will, by 2050. And with the coalition agreement that was actually moved a decade earlier. So that's really soon and we're going to see yeah. how, we, how yeah. we manage. So, so the goal is to close that 15% gap by 2040. Yeah, but it's, I mean... That's that, pretty that, close. Yeah, that's very close. <laughs> I think the helpfulness of these ambitious goals is that, you know, it definitely starts to move the society. And there's so many factors that need to come together for the final 15% mm -hmm. to close. You know, you need the businesses to be willing. You need the fishing companies to be willing to retrofit or invest in new shipping. You need uh, the tourism industry on board. You need, you know, all of these different players. And then you need to make sure that the infrastructure is developed and you need to make sure that, you know, energy producers and sellers are aiming towards the same goal and the beauty of, of having the timelines quite tangible and close in time is that then the goals become real you know it's very real that's <laughs> very real yeah yeah I've, I've, I've encountered quite a lot of uh, of pride among the people I've talked to the, the one thing I keep hearing is Iceland leads the world in clean energy per capita, right? Because there's so few people and there's yes. so, and, and so there's relatively so much clean energy and relatively so much innovation relative to yeah. the population, really uh, um, fighting above your, uh, above your weight class or whatever the analogy is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking all this time. It's been, it's been super interesting coming here and, and, and talking to people and um, 
it's been really impressive. So thanks for uh, wrapping it up for us. Thank you so much. And we'll try to, you know, continue the path, uh, hopefully collaborate with as many as possible. And I think it's punching above your weight, no? Punching above your weight, yes. thank you. So we'll, the, we'll strive to do that. It's funny that you know the uh, Americanism better than I do. Fantastic to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.